0: Superbrain is a labor of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one off donation by following the support this show link in the show or episode description.
1: Hold up. Hello, my name is Sabina Brennan and
0: you are listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Swimming in freezing cold water in the middle of winter is most definitely not my cup of tea. I won't even have a shower unless the water is piping hot. Having said that, I've always admired people who do take the plunge. I've often paused during my lockdown walks to watch increasing numbers of people wild swimming on the coldest of days. My guest today, Dr Catherine Kelly, a self-described salty seabird, has written a book about how and why water makes us feel better. Catherine Kelly, um, this is your first book book rather than an academic publication yes. it's your first we can't count our phd's as books no no i've i mean
2: i've written lots of academic papers and book chapters for academic you know, audiences, but this is my first book for real people, as I call them. And it sold out on pre-order, which is absolutely oh, yeah.
0: amazing. Yeah. It's called Blue Spaces, How and Why Water Can Make You Feel Better. And in a way, I'm kind of not surprised that it sold out. Maybe pre-pandemic, I might have been surprised, but I think mm-hmm. this kind of wild swimming or sea swimming is something that people have taken up to cope
2: with the pandemic that's not just something I'm imagining is it no you're not at all and it's really big in the UK where I live in Brighton and all over the UK but I have a dear friend who lives in Dublin one of my oldest friends and she told me a few months ago Catherine everybody is doing it here and I wouldn't believe her because I lived in Ireland until I was 33 and um, I never saw anybody get into the sea apart from a very occasional sort of oddball person.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you would see people you know who did that christmas morning swim in the freezing cold and it was yeah. a big deal cuz it was christmas morning but i live in clontarf and that's yeah. where i walk and um, yes. you know i walk along the coast and there's just so many swimmers mm-hmm. there's just hail rain and shine it's incredible it's do you think it's the pandemic
2: or was it something that was
0: building before the pandemic
2: i think it's definitely the pandemic um the huge surge in it i mean it's has started to grow I think naturally a little bit here about four years ago five years ago and here is you live along the coast you live in Brighton I do I live in Brighton an hour south of London right on the sea um, five minutes walk to the bottom of the road I'm really lucky but it's not very you know exotic sea compared to say the west of Ireland or whatever but it's urban sea and it's good sea and it's everyday sea which is great what do you mean by everyday sea that you can integrate it into your everyday life. So it's not exotic holiday sea where you feel like you have to All right. get ready for it or buy a new swimsuit or anything like that. It's just, you know, everyday life. And I think if you live in a coastal city, you're really lucky. So Dublin is... Mm is one of those
0: I'm less than five minutes from the sea actually I'm 200 yards from the sea but I don't get in and I'll come back to you though about that in a minute so it's not that you were always a sea lover or a a sea swimmer it was a life tragedy that brought you yeah it was really for you a means to survive something really shocking that happened
2: Yeah, I mean, I did always love the sea, but I didn't grow up near it, so it wasn't part of my everyday. As that I was a a Sunday, Sundays in the summer kind of person. There was rivers near us, so that was where we learned to swim. But um, yeah, twenty five years ago, my mum died really suddenly of a brain hemorrhage, just from nowhere, and yeah, it was a huge shock, and. I was living in London. I was just finished my PhD. I had my first lecturing job in a university in London. And yeah, I was just, you know, thrown sideways. And I came back home to Ireland, lived in Dublin for a year with my sister, sorted out a little bit of stuff at home. And this lovely job came up in the West of Ireland. And I went for the interview and I'd never, to my shame, I'd never been in County Mayo before. Right. And when I went, as soon as I got there and I stayed the night before the interview and I stayed in Westport and this amazing, you know, granite mountain, Croke Patrick, hovering over Clue Bay and a walk on the beach that I took to sort of settle my nerves before the interview. And I just felt it and I just thought I have to come here. This is where I need mm. to be. And this place you know, will sort me out. Mm. And it was very intuitive and very instinctive. Yeah. And it wasn't until much later. I mean, my PhD is in geography, so I'm all about landscapes and I taught heritage Mm. and natural heritage in the West of Ireland. And I since went on to do a BSc in stress management. So over time, subsequently, I started to make sense and research and read about this stuff that now has a whole sort of, research push behind it but at the time mm. I just felt when I got there this is where I need to be because this sea and this air will will fix me you know the
0: thing I should say as well is I mean your mum was <coughs> incredibly young she yes. was
2: 47 47 she's younger than I am now yeah
0: wow yeah and You'd only been chatting to her on the phone the night before. Mm-hmm. And sudden death at any age is very tough. I mean, like that, my dad was in his 80s, but he yeah. was fine. He was mm-hmm. in my house the day before and absolutely yeah. fine. And and then suddenly they're gone. It's a very I've had both, you know. My mom yes, died a slow death of dementia. Mm-hmm. And yeah. in the end, the quick death is better. But I can say that because both my parents were in their 80s. But when someone yeah. is very young, that's a very, very different very
2: shocking yeah no my mom died very suddenly and my dad died over eight years and he was young too 64 when oh. he died but it was eight years of cancer yeah. so I've had both as well and you know gosh neither of them are pleasant but a sudden death I think takes a long time for your brain to compute that it's happened it you takes know. a
0: long time yeah it does, it um, does. And-,
2: and I don't think you ever really believe it somehow because it's such an enormous thing to comprehend and it's one of those kind of existential things that mixes between surreal and real depending on what you're doing.
0: It's very strange I, I would keep seeing my dad on the yeah. street do you know and I mean it obviously yeah. wasn't him and um, yeah just kind of very strange and my husband his brother died suddenly two years ago and like that oh. he just died in an airport Wow going to board the plane wow. you know his daughter dropped him off and his wife was waiting the other end and he never Came home and was really okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so that was shocking. And I know for my mm-hmm. husband, it was incredibly shocking and took a. I, yeah. I wouldn't say they're still over it. You
2: know? I don't think you ever do get over it because it wasn't expected and it wasn't. You get used to it. Yes. It's kind of like walking with a wound or something. You have a scar on you somewhere that you kind of say, oh, yeah, that's where that happens. Yeah. But it's kind of, it's with you, becomes part of you. Really changed your life because you had this trajectory of. You were yeah. starting off your
0: career in the UK mm-hmm. and you come home for a year. You were, your mother had a business, so you were trying to.
2: That's right. We were, well, it was my dad and my younger sister that were kind of stuck into sorting that out. But I, I rented a house in Dublin and she came to live with me. She was still only in in college in Dublin yeah. and 19. And yeah. my mom died the day after her birthday. <gasps> and it was all very raw, you know, and we just sort of hung on to each other a wee bit until we studied. Yeah and then figured out what to do. She took a year off university and then went back. And then this job came up for me. And it was a great thing.
0: And did you sort
2: of, in a way, take that year out, you know, as well? Or... No, I worked in DIT um, for a year, a job came up. Right, okay. And I felt kind of guilty because I left them after nine months because this other thing came up yeah. at the time. And I couldn't pass it up. It was my perfect job in the best place ever. I could work for the Mayo Tourist Board probably, but it is just a stunning, wild place. So you found, and it is beautiful and, and Westport is fabulous. It is. So you fell in love with the
0: sea, basically. And at that point, did you start to go swimming in the sea?
2: I did a bit of swimming in the sea, but initially it was more walking beside it. So, I rented a house first of all, which had sea views and mountain views, mm-hmm. and then I ended up buying a house, which was again right on the sea. It was like a five-minute walk through a little wooded lane straight onto Old Head Strand, which is a blue flag beach with wow. you know white sand, rocks, and and a view of Croagh Patrick, and it was very wild. You know, it was quite remote, but that's what I needed. And I grew up in a rural place in Wicklow, so it didn't scare me being there. I remember, I think I said in the book, there was this nice man that I worked with and he said, Catherine, you know, what's a young one like you doing off out there in the middle of nowhere? Would you ever go and live in the town? Yeah. And I said, no, I'm fine. That's I love it there, you know, and it's where I rebalanced myself. I walked that beach every day twice a day three miles long and yeah it just calmed me and it healed me and some days i felt great and some days i didn't and it's the wind and the sea and the water just is very healing if you let it in i think you know grief is very much like a a wound and if we have a wound what do we do we clean it with water Mm. and we let the air at it and that's very much for me you know, analogy of of what that was. Mm. But I wasn't doing it consciously at the time, you know, because I was so in the throes of the aftermath and trying to kind of keep myself straight and I was starting a new job. So even people who worked with me wouldn't even necessarily know this about me because I didn't want to be, oh, poor Catherine with the sob story whose mother died. You know, I didn't really talk about it because I didn't want that to be my sort of badge or my label. Mm. Who who you became. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it was quite
0: a private thing. Yeah, I think it's hard in a workplace because when you do say something like that, well, then, you know, people catch you. It's like that when you first go back to work. Now, you did—you obviously didn't have that because you then went somewhere else. But it is Oh, no, awful. I did go back did to you? my
2: job in England. Yeah, no, I had a few months. Oh, God, in England as well. And people say stuff are kind of don't, don't say anything. On... Oh, oh, they're not. No, the English don't say anything. Do it's even worse. Oh. No, nothing. They're just... Or get highly uncomfortable and avoid eye contact. Oh <laughs> which gosh, it's really unhealthy. Oh. Yeah. And then because nobody knew my mum there, it was just sort of a story. You know what I mean? Yeah.
0: They have kind of a different, a whole different sort of funeral system as well. You know, inviting oh, people. Yeah. We go to show our respects, and the more people who show up, the better. Mm. And we talk about the person, and yeah. we talk to, and we, we laugh about pray. them, and I suppose we wake them
2: in a way. Yeah. You don't realize how comforting that ritual is until you don't have it. Yeah. Yeah. So you ended up spending about, was it six years? Six years. Yeah, six years in Mayo. So it was no small amount. And then you felt the draw to go back to the UK. Well, again, this other job came up. I I was doing this lovely degree in heritage studies. And then after six years and I was involved in the lovely arts festival in Westport and I had lovely friends and colleagues and the landscape was lovely, but I sort of had a little niggle that I couldn't do anything more there. Okay. The little call where you think, I don't know what else I can do. And I kind of feel okay now. Yeah. And I was really interested in well-being and that side of things. And there was not much sort of exposure to bigger things or opportunities there at that time in the late nineties. So, yeah, this, again, job led, a job came up at the lovely World Heritage Site, University of Greenwich, the old Royal Naval College on the Thames and again in heritage management. So I went and I took it as a career break, first of all, because I wasn't sure mm-hmm. if I'd regret it. You were dipping your toe in the water,
0: metaphorically uh, yeah, speaking.
2: <laughs> exactly. And it was such a jump to go from the wilds of Old Head to London. Mm. But no, I did, I really enjoyed it. And you were beside the water again. I was on the river, yeah. I remember <laughs> I remember a few weeks after I landed there, the Garden Opera Theatre were playing this outdoor show. And if you're in the university, you got free tickets because it was on the campus. So I was sitting there having a glass of champagne, listening to Cuccini or something, and this tall ship came up the Thames with the masts. And I thought, gosh, uh-huh. now that's different to where <laughs> I just was five minutes ago not better or worse just really
0: different yeah. so yeah you know so what's really interesting you know about the book is it's a combination of your personal story other people's relationships with blue spaces how they feel about them mm-hmm. and then science and wellness so it's really yeah. nice all-round mix and if you've any sort of affinity like I am not a swimmer I'm not a cold sea swimmer mm-hmm. uh, and I do want to talk to you about that but I love to walk the beach so the beach yeah. saved me during the pandemic when I go for my mm-hmm. walk I walk out the coast and back and I actually got a bit so for listeners Clontarf where I live is a promenade and you walk along and you come to a beach and then you come to um, Bull Island yeah. so it's Bull Island beautiful yeah. yeah there's a bird sanctuary there and it's an eco-biosphere down at the causeway so mm. a, it really is a nice place and that's really important for me I like the wind in my face Mm -hmm. um and I should say to people listening uh Catherine has described Westport as this beautiful idyllic place it absolutely is but it wouldn't be the place now where you'd get a lot of heat and sunshine throughout throughout
2: the year like you really are on the edge of the island you're on the Atlantic oh gosh yeah I often said that you should have a special tax allowance for living in the West Coast because (laughs) you bear the brunt of the full Atlantic squalls on behalf of the rest of the country. Yeah, you do. And it is, it's the kind of place if you open your car door, it swings off its hinges and your hair goes left or right, whatever way it's going. Yeah.
0: Tell me what, because I can feel really alive in the, piss and rain and it's shower and once I'm wearing the right clothes and I don't have to worry about my hair like I love that do you know what I mean it's not that I'm precious but I can't and you talk about it in the book that sort of fear moment before Mm -hmm. you go in yeah Yeah, I really struggle to get over that. I haven't got that far. I stand and watch the people that Mm -hmm. go in to swim because I think it's amazing and it's exhilarating. And I'd love to be able to do it. But yeah, I'm not there yet anyway. You might be
2: overthinking it. Maybe. Um, (sighs) I'm not good with that kind of cold. But you know what? You say you're not good with that kind of cold. But honestly, I wouldn't do this if it didn't make me feel amazing. I'm not that much of a sadist. Mm. So if it didn't feel great nobody would keep doing it.
0: But is it not that you feel great
2: after it? I can't explain it. It's really different from, like I I walk by the sea a lot as well. And if I'm going for a walk by the sea with my little dog, Skip, hello Skip, and it's really windy and really cold and a bit rainy, I can be quite miserable because I think, oh God, here's this, you know, it's freezing and all of that. So I'm really comparing my place (laughs) in the walk to the weather. Whereas if I'm going into the sea, my mind is really focused on the fact that I am getting in the water and it's almost like you tune out everything else. So therefore you're not absorbing the kind of messages about the weather or the temperature because your mind is really focused on getting into the water. And,
0: and you do talk about that. You talk about self-talk. There's lots of practical tips in the book and there's lots of things for people to try. But this is one of sort of your suggestions to help overcome that fear that I was kind of talking about. You do talk quite a lot about mindfulness in this.
1: Yeah, um, yeah.
0: And that's really important. Being present in the moment is brilliant for your brain. It's brilliant for your mental mm-hmm. health. It, like it really is oh, brilliant yeah. for everything. And actually, that's something that I often suggest to people if you're struggling to do that use self-talk and that's what pilots do so that they don't make a mistake they have to talk through so that their attention stays focused on what they're doing
2: that's a good strategy
0: yeah Um, Yeah actually This one here I just pick it out You know you said You're an introvert Who speaks for a living Needs her silence To rebalance I totally identify Mm -hmm. With that So I do a lot of talks And I do podcasts And I do TV and radio That's exhausting You know And the rest of the time I need my (sighs) Yeah absolutely (laughs) I don't want to talk And walking is part of that And going and looking at the sea Or for me Taking photographs The
2: sea is really quiet Water is quiet You know Which is what's nice But it's
0: sound I like the sound of yeah.
2: water as yeah. much as yeah. looking at it. I like to hear the sea. But that's why it's, I speak um, with well, this is with my sort of geography hat on as well about this idea of sensory landscapes mm. and places. And blue space is very much this kind of sensory landscape where we listen to the sound of water. Um, and it sounds different every day. You know, the sea itself sounds really different um, depending on what the tides are doing and the wind.
0: The blue spaces in this, it refers to water in oh, any water. shape, make or form. And you have your yeah. rivers and waterfalls and sea and canals that we've mentioned. But you also extend it to and talk about fountains, water features, it extends to everything. And I I was thinking about that. You talk about the restorative nature and how it refreshes. And I don't do that sea swimming. Now, if I'm when the gym is open, Mm -hmm. if I go to the gym and I do a workout, I love to finish with a few lengths in the pool And into the jacuzzi Mm -hmm. I like to finish Mm -hmm. that way Mm -hmm. But if I need to refresh Even my brain or restore And I did it this afternoon um, Because like yourself You're very busy promoting your book I've had the same sort of few weeks And I am tired now, you know
2: Yeah, it's tiring
0: I was reading your book Which was a lovely thing To get to do today And for it to be sort of my work, you know Um, (laughs) But I said I really need to refresh Before Mm. I come So I went upstairs and I had a shower Now, you see, this is where I say About my relationship relationship with hot and cold the water yeah. has to be really really hot and um, I will mm-hmm. do that thing that you talk about you do mention it even splashing cold water on your face is really good mm. I get mm-hmm. that yeah I've done that that's a great sort mm-hmm. of her upper absolutely but getting the whole body in now is
2: no well it just depends on what it's very personal you know this is why I don't kind of like to make really sort of directive um You know, this is what you have to do because we're all different. I like a really hot bath, for example. Right. Okay. And like that, too, nobody would be able to get into it except me, probably in the house. And I like an average shower, but I always turn the shower to cold for the last two minutes. But I wouldn't get into it if it wasn't hot to start with. Right. So my cold water is very much to do with natural cold water. And people love Wim Hof, you know, the guy who has the ice method about, you know, freezing yourself in cold ice buckets and cold showers and so on to stimulate the body and mind and it's about tolerance and endurance and different things but Mm -hmm. it really does actually kick off various parts of the nervous system that help with mood and if you're having a sluggish low day get into a cold shower or turn your shower to cold for the last minute or two and it really will improve things wake you up (laughs) yeah absolutely W.J. Nichols, Wallace J. Nichols wrote a lovely book called Blue Mind a few years ago, and he talks about the state that water induces in our brains. So Mm -hmm. obviously our parasympathetic nervous system kicks in and it's the opposite of red mind, which is, of course, you know, our stress response. And yeah, it's speaking about the way in which water can calm us. And, you know, there's a a whole book of, of science in that, but he is quite light touch as well. And one of the things that I really like that he talks about is this notion of drift, which is this thing that happens to us when we're in or near water, which is that our mind calms down in a really unforced way. So it's almost like conscious daydreaming. If you're walking along by the sea, as, as you said, you often do. Or sometimes if you just sit you know, on a bench and look at the water, you just kind of go off into a sort of a dreamlike state And our breathing slows down and all the various stress hormones start to subside. So this kind of blue mind notion has been really research-based
0: what you've just yep. described and I've spoken about it on the show before is we would call that the default mode network so yeah. it's where different okay. networks in your brain actually become more active would you believe when you're in that place different to when you're mm. actively engaged in an activity but mm. really it's a very creative space in that really exactly. what it is is it's yeah. your brain it, daydreaming is probably the closest way To describe it but really it's just often you can get solutions to problems you can come up with ideas in that space so it's really just letting your brain take all the information it has and just doodle in a way it's like you're letting your brain doodle and from that sort of thing without actually actively Mm -hmm. engaging in it. Mm -hmm. Um, I tend not to talk about the mind at all as a concept I much prefer to talk about the brain you do mention Mm -hmm. the mind a lot of people do it's very much in our language and uh, the only reason I don't use it as i sort of feel it's a little bit of an unnecessary middleman i just prefer to talk brain and i I suppose what a lot of people think about the mind is our thinking it's how we think about things i tend to just talk about thinking because i just think it actually helps to empower people because it's a little bit more concrete than that concept of mind you know but all of it makes perfect sense it's just semantics And, and of course you see the word mind is around long before sort of neuroscience and technology where we could actually see that this is Mm -hmm. your brain functioning. And as you said, it's your parasympathetic nervous system and all of those stemming in and from your brain. So you first found water at a time in your life that helped you grieve and helped you start to function again and i suppose find joy in life and then you you came back to uk you worked in the in the thames i was going to say near the thames <laughs> and um you met your partner and you had a baby but then you really went through another really challenging period of time you decided to study another degree yeah as you do. You had several miscarriages. I did between my two boys. Mm -hmm. And then another pregnancy reading it you're going how did you get through this how did you do all this.
2: I know you know when you do stuff like that and you look back on it and you think what was going on there. (laughs) Yeah no I had my first little boy Luca in London and I was in my late 30s when I had him I'd been used to kind of having, you know, a full and interesting life with, you know, my friends. And I was in London and we would often go away on weekends to places around Europe. And I had a really nice colleague, friend, and we'd go off to India and we started doing some research out there on well-being. And Very we were nice. starting to write some really nice stuff that was just our own personal interest and turned into kind of a thing. And so I had, you know, a really nice sort of set of interests and friends and stuff. And I was really worried about turning into a vegetable on the sofa in maternity leave. That's why I started doing another degree in stress management. I just did a couple of modules and I just thought that will keep my brain functioning because I was really worried that I'm not going to have anyone to talk to and I'll have a little baby and I'll be watching 800 episodes of Grand Designs, which I did. Yes, and love <laughs> Grand Designs. <laughs> I love it too, but I hated it after maternity leave because I watched so much of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I did the degree. I, I started off doing it part-time. I was kind of accredited out of quite a bit of it right, because, yeah. of, you know, I wasn't going to have to study research methods if I was teaching it and the, yeah, with, yeah. And with the rest of the time. So that kind of thing. And yeah, I had, yeah, unfortunately, between the two boys, my first and second son, I just had, yeah, I had three miscarriages in a year, which was really challenging. And of course, you know, I was at that age then where I thought it's now or never. And I just didn't want him to be an only child. Yeah. And it was really stressful. I remember on the third one, I think I was in the, almost in the final year. Of the stress management degree. And I remember having to stand up, and I'd only just come out from hospital maybe the day before and stand up and give an assessed presentation. Oh my God. About integrative health systems or some flipping thing. And, you know, the way you just put on your game face and you do it because that's what's required. Yeah, it's horrific. And it's such a personal thing. And, you know, a lot of workplaces and universities are very patriarchal. And, you know, you often, more often than not, you'll have a male boss or above him is a male boss. So it can be a very personal thing to talk about. Mm -hmm. And... It's very upsetting when you're in it as well. So it's kind of like that grief thing is to, it can trigger you off into being really upset and, and what have you. So you tend not to say it. And again, it's England, so oh. <laughs> there's another layer. But yeah, and i have always been very open about miscarriage. I don't understand why people don't talk about it because it's a hugely physical, quite a violent process to go through physically oh. and mentally. And to then just have to suck it up and say nothing. I think, is not healthy. So, yeah, I had to do that. And then just as I was pregnant then with my second son, of course, I didn't believe it was going to happen till I saw him because of what just happened. I was writing up my final dissertation for that degree about stress management. <laughs> oh, oh. The irony yes. of the universe playing tricks on me. And we were trying to move out of London down to Brighton at that time. Oh, my God. Moving house as well. And, oh, yes. The house sales fell through. Oh, God. Do it all. Why don't three you? Three times. Oh, yeah, my God. Oh my god! Post two thousand eight crash where everybody's mortgages kept getting refused, and it was the whole thing fell through a few times, and it was just like, oh, where was water and blue spaces in this? Water was just the Thames at work at that point. Although several times during my work at uh, Greenwich in London, I would just reach a point where I had to get up and go. I remember, I think I write about it in the book. You do because that's what I was going to just ask you about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there was one staff meeting I was in and it was just like you know one of those ones where everybody's talking and nobody's listening and I was just having like a rough time of it and I was like oh god I have to get out of here and I just I stood up I didn't make a fuss or anything I just stood up and I picked up my books and I left the building I only had my handbag on me (laughs) and I just went straight to the train station and I got on the train to Brighton and I stayed there for two days Were you living in Brighton at that point? No, I was living in London just because it was the nearest sea that I could think of. And yeah, I checked into a hotel and I brought a toothbrush and a swimsuit and I got in the sea and I went to a drop in meditation class and a yoga class and I slept and I was silent and quiet like I used to be in the West of Ireland right. until I could just kind of, and those were all the things I needed to be. I needed to breathe. I needed to sleep. I needed to swim and I needed to see the sea. Well, I have to say, when I read that, I just went, fair fucks to you. Brilliant. Um,
0: <laughs> I love it.
2: I love it. But At that point, did you have a baby? No, I didn't have him at that time. Okay. No, I didn't. That was, so I was free to go off. That's on okay. Little... Cause the mum and me was saying, okay, what yeah. about, <laughs> no, God, no, No, we can't not, but you know what though, Sabina is, that triggered in me then a ritual and a habit that I have done for 13 years now. And I do it three times a year, every four months, religiously. Mm-hmm. Um, and you talk about striving and surviving. <clears throat> this is one of my total survival, personal kind of preventative well being yeah. strategies, yeah. which is I go away on my own from lunchtime Saturday to lunchtime Sunday to a nice little hotel up the coast. So not, not Brighton. I go to Eastbourne and I check into a little hotel. doesn't have to be expensive. And I leave at lunchtime on Saturday. So the morning, all the groceries and all the bits and bobs are done, homework and what have you. And then I come back lunchtime Sunday. So I'm still there to kind of have a Sunday afternoon, but that 24 hours is like a week In terms of what it does for you, because I pick somewhere that doesn't take a long time to get to, Mm. not too expensive. And again, like that, I bring my swimsuit, a candle, a book. Sometimes I bring a little bottle of wine, depending on what mood I'm in and my journal. Mm. And as soon as I get there, I check in and I go straight across the road, rain, shine, snow, whatever, into the sea. And then I lash back across the beach in their big white fluffy towel through the lobby and up the stairs. (laughs) I don't care. (laughs) And I have several baths and I pick stones and pebbles and seaweed and shells and little tea lights. And I adorn the whole bath with the stuff that I've collected on the shore. Oh, lovely. And then that comes in with me and I have a hot bath after being in the sea. And I could have two or three baths in 24 hours and another swim. And then I just, you know, I sleep. I have time to myself. You don't have to do anything. You just do whatever you feel like doing that night. But having had breakfast served up to me in a nice hotel with the sea view i then go into the little library in the hotel and i have the same journal for the last years and years and i just do a little reflection on how the last three months or four months has gone little kind of light touch yeah headings on family and work and life purpose and health whatever it is you know that your stuff is and I sort of say what's been happening and a little nudge of what I want to do and in those moments of pause is where all my creative stuff has come so I became quite disillusioned with academia and I I have spurts of feeling highly disillusioned with it and then thinking it's fine over time so I decided to go part-time and in those moments of being away on my little mini retreats I have always come away with the strategy of okay well I, if I'm going to do something in well-being what can I do I've got my degree now in stress management what am I going to do with that and so that has led me to do different training courses in mindfulness for example I did other training to do with children so from that I set up this program called chill squad yes which is an education program well-being, mindfulness, resilience in schools. I've taught probably over a thousand children in the UK, just going into to schools to sit with them and teach them to breathe and get through their emotions and be present. And yeah, just to, to chill out. You're
0: living the life. I can't remember here because I can't find it here in the book, but I do remember because it jumped out at me because a lot of it speaks to, you know, a lot of the things I would suggest that people do to kind of keep their brain in good shape. Okay. Oh, great. And uh, so you're obviously, you know, you're ticking your box of learning. You're ticking your box of giving because there's great benefits from giving or if you want to call it kindness Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever, you know, there's great benefits Mm -mm. in doing that, being active.
2: Yeah. The five ways to well-being. That's it.
0: And being connected. So Mm -hmm. they're all in there. And actually in my own book, there's a lot of those in there. You know, a lot of this is around, you know, balance in life. And one of the things I'm interested, because I would always say you said you take your pause. I love that. One of the things I'm missing most during lockdown actually is I used to travel for work. I do consultancy work and I would use those as my moments, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So that's Mm -hmm. actually what I'm missing most during lockdown is those. Because I would go away maybe four times a month, if not Mm -hmm. more sometimes. Yeah. So I do kind of miss that.
2: Yeah, and it gives body and brain a chance to see. I didn't say mine there. Um, a chance just to stop, you know yeah. what I mean, and have a break from multitasking because most women are supreme plate spinners. And you know, when you go, and all my friends say, Oh, Catherine, are you going there again? Oh, you're so great. I must come with you sometime. And I, I just, I know? Think, no, I don't want oh, you because I, <laughs> I don't speak, I don't want to speak to anybody, I want to be completely silent. It's that introvert thing again, yeah. And not to have to negotiate where we're going for dinner or what we're having, or yeah. even if we're having any dinner, we might have a bag of crisps, quite frankly. How old are your kids? They're 13 and 10 now. OK, so you still
0: are quite young. So that's the one thing that I benefit from
2: because mine are grown
0: now. So I have a lot more of that in my life. Mm hmm.
2: But take it, because that is a total thing that I hear back from everybody. Well, I couldn't go. They're too small. I can't. You know what? If you go lunchtime Saturday to lunchtime Sunday, everyone will survive. Yes. Even if you're like a bit control freaky about making sure everybody's, you know, going to have something to eat or whatever. You can give them their breakfast. You can just about make them their lunch and you can be back by lunchtime the next day. I totally agree with that. And yeah, but you, it's, it's letting go of it. And I would argue that actually everyone but
0: women in particular who are juggling jobs oh gosh, and children. Yeah. But there should be an hour in every day. That's just yours. Mm. That's just yours to do something fun, fun, like yeah. not even to do something yeah. that you want to Well, that's why I do. see
2: Swim. Yeah, yeah.
1: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it.
0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Water is just joyful, and I think this—I've mentioned that a bit in the book as well—is it gives us an opportunity to play. And laugh. Yes. So laughter is nature's natural stress buster. You actually
0: say in the book, you can't laugh and be stressed at the same time. So play. And and actually, this of my 30 day plan, the second week in my book is about managing stress. And Mm. all I say to people is you have got to make time today to do something fun, to smile and to laugh. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's all you Mm -hmm. have to do. And you have to build that as a ritual into your day for you. You found it. It's your swimming. It won't be swimming for everybody. But, you know, it has to be. It's not because often I think women think me time is time for me to fix up that thing in the bedroom or get a bit of my work done. No, that's not you
2: time. Mm. The you time is for something Mm -hmm. that's truly just fun. Yes. And a lot of people don't know what that is. That's another they thing to say, oh, you're lucky, Catherine, you know what it is. And and I just thought, well, the way you get to know what your thing is, is by being quiet and taking yourself away from your every day, even for 24 hours. And I recommend this in the book as well, is if there's something that you've always wanted to do, start by taking a course on it. Yeah. Find out, make a list of five places where they might run an evening course, a one-off workshop. A weekend and sign up for it Yep, and do it before your next four-month break and then you look back and that's what i've done and then suddenly i'm you know i say i'm running this chill squad program and i i also run wild blue school which is an education again trips to the coast for school groups and i talk to them about the coast as a natural environment or as a human environment and we do breathing outdoors and i can build in the curriculum and have them tell me adjectives about the sea to describe it and create stuff and do little drama things. And it's lovely. And I love both of those things make me feel like myself in a way that complements my academic self. And they're really different because the joy and affection that little kids give you when you're with them is just, they're very unfettered in their responses. And that's lovely.
0: Yeah, they're very honest and they're very curious and it's lovely, you know, and they'll ask you questions that will really make mm-hmm. you think. And uh, it's really lovely. And I totally hear you. You know, mm-hmm. I've moved more and more. I think for women, that you know, the academic environment is not necessarily the healthiest environment.
2: Well, it assumes striving and striving can be stressful. I think everybody assumes that, that striving and going on a sort of a trajectory in a particular linear direction is what all humans want and it isn't you know because people have said to me are you not a professor yet I sort of no interest in being a professor I don't want to be on that treadmill I want to be a part-time person who does my own stuff it's a very narrow it's very
0: rigid you know there really isn't much room for you know it's you go this step and this step and you're judged by Mm. X, Y, Z. Um, So I'm much happier writing. And I'm sure after writing this book and with what you're doing, you may find yourself moving eventually, you know, almost away altogether that you actually
2: don't need that academic part, but maybe you do. Mm. A little bit of it is nice, I think. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. One reinforces the other probably.
0: So the book, it's really nice the way it's set up and set out. You oh, you. you start off really with your own story and then mm-hmm. you share, you know, science behind what we know about water and well-being. Mm-hmm. And actually, there's something really interesting. I always say to people, you know, the power of pause, which is what you've just said, really, really important. But it's really, really important to get out in nature and never more mm-hmm. so than during the pandemic. And yes, being out in nature is restorative, you know, it really is brilliant for managing stress and for all those things that you and I have just talked about now. And then you go into that detail again in Mm -hmm. the book. But you do mention somewhere in the book that blue spaces were winning over green spaces.
2: (laughs) They were. That was a really big study by Natural England about seven or eight years ago. That was a self-report, but there is also really big quantitative studies going on at the University of Exeter. Okay. Where they have done really sort of statistical reports on what they call the healthy coast effect. Okay. And they've done things like measured statistically Things like what distance do you have to live from the sea in order to have a benefit and how often and how regular and for how long do you need to be exposed to that environment for it to have a specific physiological and psychological effect. So they're working with a big team of EU researchers on that. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, so the sea is just behind us here
0: and mm-hmm. I can't imagine living in a four-sided place. Mm-hmm. So oh, I live I in a, like a, you know, one side always has to be the sea. That's just open. the way it has to yeah. be. It has to be open. Yeah. And I've often thought I'd love to afford a holiday home. One of my little sort of hobbies, it's like the, the grand design yeah. thing, is looking on daft.ie, looking on the sides. Oh, where it says, oh, uh, yeah, oh there's yeah. a lovely oh, place. Don't. Oh, Dave, there's yeah. a lovely place in Westport. Oh, don't I look at Westport myself from, yeah. from over here? would you yeah so I do that but I i really would be putting in oh no 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 sure it's nowhere near the sea where's that and I look at the map oh god no that's miles away from the sea it would have to either be the yeah. sea and if it couldn't be the sea it would then absolutely have to be on a lake or river there would just have mm-hmm. to be water yeah. I'd accept a stream at the end of the garden of course all of this is just totally imaginary because mm-hmm. I can't afford any
2: of it but but it doesn't matter it's the thought of it isn't it oh it's and... lovely I, I'm the same. I Yeah, know I, I was in Switzerland and Austria a few times with research work in the last couple of years. And as soon as yeah. I came, there's a particular bend on the road when you're driving down the A23 from Gatwick to Brighton. And as you turn the corner, you see the sea in the distance and it kind of sparkles up at you. And it's just like, oh, OK. And many of yeah. the time I have just, even if it's dark, I've just had to go down and stand on the beach and look out at the horizon. And I think that's the big thing in lockdown and COVID as well, is we've had really strong physical claustrophobia, as well as this kind of existential claustrophobia, this notion of not being able to get out. And the sea and water gives you a sort of a natural sense of freedom or something that can't be controlled maybe, that I think we're drawn to in quite an innate way. I did a a little small survey during the first lockdown here where you couldn't, you weren't allowed into the sea. I just put it on a, a swimming forum that I'm on and I got 200 responses in about four hours from people talking about how much they missed getting in the water. So you weren't actually allowed to get into the water? No, we weren't. They banned coastal swimming at the very first lockdown because it was a risk to the RNLI, the lifeguard, life-saving coast guard, oh, all of right, that. Oh, okay, because I was trying to figure out what the logic was. And also that the NHS, the health service was overrun and they didn't want silly sort of casualties of people just messing yeah. about and also the fact if the Coast Guard had to come and rescue you at that time, they knew very little about transmission and yeah. would you give somebody COVID if you, they had to be resuscitated and all that sort of stuff? Yes,
0: Absolutely. What I've been surprised about as I got further into the book, I had assumed you were this real swimmer, swimmer, you know, really strong. But like you talk about other people saying, oh, they want to swim out and swim around the boy and, you know, oh, kind God, of come no. back. And you said that strikes fear in you. You know, I love yes. the sea. And but there's certain types of the sea that I'm terrified of. Like I would not want to go on a cruise. I would never want to go on a cruise Mm-mm. or, you know, I don't oh, really no, like, being you know, that deep, deep sea, that's scary, mm-hmm. you know, and, and mm-hmm. I mean, scary in that you should always respect that oh yeah the, the sea in that way but at one point you decided
2: to go whitewater rafting <laughs> oh yeah that was back now that was a few years after I moved to yeah when I moved to Westport I'd done a couple of years there and I just was really exhausted and I'd kind of the grief cut up on me and I'd always had the whole sort of head down four-year degree in Trinity, three-year PhD, first academic job, big sort of trauma. And I kept going. And then I just hit a wall and said, right, I need to go traveling and I need to get away from here and I need to go and do some nice stuff that I've always wanted to do. So my lovely boss, Richard Thorne, gave me a year off wow. career break and I booked an around-the-world ticket. And Wow, amazing. Yeah, 15 months best, honestly, was great. I worked in New York for five months and made money to fund the rest of it and um, at one point towards the end of the trip I went to South Africa and then I traveled up to Zimbabwe and Zambia and I always wanted to go whitewater rafting it was one of the things in my mind I just thought it was going to be really fun you know bouncing around in an inflatable boat great crack you know splashy happy days you know what a jolly jape it would be, and um, no, I was knocked out of the boat. The Zambezi is a serious Grade Five river, which is like one of the toughest. Yeah, you kind of went for yeah.
0: the big white water rafting of white water rafting, anyway.
2: Well, you know, it's just it was one of these mythical things, you know. God, yeah, you have to do it, you know, bucket list kind of thing. And I was quite adventurous. But you weren't just knocked out of the boat; you were knocked out. You were concussed. Oh yeah, no, I was. Now, the Zambezi has waves in it, interestingly, that are part of the mad rushing water. And the boat was capsized, which is not uncommon, whitewater rafting. But at this particular one, it was a very hectic one. And I was on a wooden board sitting on the back of the boat, which I then heard was used as a kind of a stretcher <laughs> for emergencies. And loads of people die on that river every year, which I didn't know at the time either. But, you know, oh, when you're my in your goodness. 20s and you think, oh, yeah, it'll be grand. And... um Your desire for a thrill is higher than your sort of health and safety mode. Um, Yeah. And yeah, I was knocked out. I was concussed. And then I ended up trapped under the boat in the dark. And I had a life jacket on, so I couldn't kind of get out and under. And I was holding on to the raft, which was pulling it down on me, whilst moving at rapid speed, up and down, wobbling. It was like being in a washing machine in the dark with four people pulling your legs under.
0: Oh, my God. Can you recall what went through your head at the time?
2: Yeah, I mean, I was holding on. Oh, I can, can, to this moment, I can be back there in a second. Like it was such a a vivid imprint on your brain, you know? Yeah, it was really scary, but I couldn't figure out how to get out. I was kind of concussed, so I wasn't able to think properly. All I knew was holding on seemed to make sense. You know, it was quite Mm. instinctive. But by holding on, I was reducing the airspace between me and I couldn't figure out how to get out and under and I didn't know where I was I was completely disorientated yeah as I was going up and down in moving quickly through this dark roaring water I was swallowing more and more water and I couldn't breathe and I knew I was taking in so much water that there was nothing I could do really and I just had this Mm. yeah real quiet resignation that being able to swim or being strong or fit or anything didn't matter because mm. the water was too much for me, and it was quite quiet. And as I said, I did think of God. You paid a hundred dollars to kill yourself. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then I just let go, and I came round. Yeah, well, I couldn't. I couldn't breathe anymore. I was. Right. I was like literally. <laughs> You know. Oh
0: my God. It just I I'm just seeing scenes from a movie, you yeah. know, where you
2: see where you see that.
0: Oh my yeah. God. Because I Holden. can't breathe even watching those.
2: Yeah, holding you wonder. It was like that sort of thing. And then I came around, you know, having been given mouth to mouth resuscitation. I was back in the raft, but I have no recollection of that point of going unconscious to I was told afterwards I floated down the river evens out again once the big rapid calms. Um, for a little while and the kayakers retrieved the raft because everybody else in it flew out but they all flew out into the river so the kayakers picked them up but they didn't know where I was because I was under it. Right. So I was eventually yeah, put back into it and given yeah, resource. And
0: the thing is you had to
2: continue the journey because
0: there was no other way I was so I I, I cannot imagine
2: that (laughs) that was the worst part of the whole thing is I just said can I walk the rest of the way I was so like traumatised and they're like no the river is only as wide as the gorge there's no way out you have to go in the boat and there's crocodiles and there's you know and it was literally like vertical walls either side so I had another eight rapids to do and I was white knuckled for the whole rest of it you can imagine oh my god So that's a trauma, you know, so massive,
0: yeah, huge trauma. And I'm sure the fact that you can get right back there, there has to be some sort of post traumatic stress associated with. But how did you get back into water then? I know the water is very different, but yeah,
2: I think it was something to do with the fact that it was such a unique, specific thing that happened. I just thought, well, that was quite a random situation. No, I learned to surf about five years after it in Cornwall. And that doesn't trigger fear. I'm quite controlled with how I surf. but I don't okay. go off out into the huge, big breakers. Now, my 12-year-old son, Luca, he goes out surfing now, and I can't watch him because I get too afraid looking at him. But he's completely fearless. My partner goes out with him, and, and I actually met my partner surfing. Um, he's Italian. We met in the Canaries on a surfing trip, weirdly. Right. But I love the thrill of surfing. I love feeling like you're flying on water, But I'll choose a wave carefully. I won't go Hmm. really far out and I won't choose the ones that will pound me and throw me around the place too much. And I know how to, you know, head cover if I think the board is going to fly up and whack me.
0: You assess your risk and, you know. Yeah, but stuff can still happen.
2: Yeah. And I don't. So it's what I choose to do, really. And you kind of know if you're going to get wiped out on a surfboard, you can feel it coming. It's not that much of a surprise. Okay. and so what do you do? Do you just kind of have to let go, just go with the flow of it or? or- yeah, hold your breath and go under and wait for the wave to pass. Wow. <laughs> you know, <sighs> but yeah. but it doesn't happen often. If I'm told to put my face in water, like I try, you know, I've I learned to swim in the rivers and what have you. Never had a swimming lesson in my life. A couple of years ago, some of my lovely salty seabirds swimming group in Brighton. I'm glad you brought them up. Yeah, oh, they're awesome women. They ran this kind of, oh, anybody wants to improve their front crawl. And I thought, oh, look, at I've never had a swimming lesson. Maybe I'll go and do that. And it was in an outdoor pool. The swimming instructor said, OK, I want you to put your face in the water and swim underwater all the way to the end. I stood up halfway through the pool. I wasn't even out of my depth, so it wasn't to do with being deep. But it was Mm. being told to put your face under. And I got up and I felt really like, oh, God, I can't do this. Mm. So the real mental block about it, when the session was finished and stuff, I got in the car and I felt really tearful. I was like, oh, Mm. God, what's that about? You know,
0: your amygdala remembering that that was a very dangerous thing to do. Don't do it again. The really interesting thing is when your stress response kicks off, In an acute stress situation, doing its job as it should, which, Mm -hmm. you know, it did in that situation under the the boat. It did whatever it could do to Mm -hmm. save your life. Memory is actually enhanced for that moment. Mm -hmm. okay, and that's why you said. I can still remember it. I can still see it. It's enhanced. So uh, as a yeah. life preservation yeah. method so that oh, you yeah. can remember never to kind of get in that. That's where you nearly lost your life. At. Mm. Interestingly, uh, and I'll only say it very briefly, if you become uh, chronically stressed, which is what mm. you're talking about, that blue spaces are a great benefit for in mm. that they can really help with that. If you become chronically stressed, the reverse happens and your ability to learn and remember becomes impaired.
2: Mm. Mm -mm. The
0: the hippocampus neuroplasticity is suppressed and it's actually increased in the amygdala. So you become Mm -mm. more and more fearful.
2: I had adrenaline coursing through my body for about 48 hours after that. No, I'm not
0: surprised. and
2: I ran up the gorge, which is about an hour and a half hike in about 20 minutes, like a billy goat. It was like somebody had jetpacked me. My whole body. Well, that's what the stress response yeah. does. Oh my God. But it was so physical to experience it. Oh, it, but it's a physiological
0: yeah. response. Yeah. It, it actually totally suppresses is. your immune system. It suppresses mm. digestion. It gives sends everything mm. to your muscles. So mm. you can do that running oh away at
2: speed. Yeah. I would like you to tell me a little bit about your salty seabirds. My salty seabirds are this amazing tribe of women And Ruth Fitzmaurice wrote a lovely book that affected me very much years ago called I Found My Tribe. I was going to ask you about that. Her her
0: husband had motor neuron disease, um, which is really, really dreadful. And they had young children and Mm -hmm. essentially motor neuron disease. You lose every faculty Um. a little bit at a time. It is a death sentence and it's a very slow death sentence. It's it's awful. But she found her tribe, which was Seascombe.
2: Yes, exactly. And my son is a member of the Surf Life Saving Club in Brighton. And through that, I met a lovely woman called Kath. And they did a little kind of pilot group to invite 15 women to sit down and talk about access to the sea, because they wanted to start up a group and they wanted to kind of do a little bit of research on what people's fears and worries were, or what stopped you from getting into the water. A lot of us had these kind of trauma experiences or something happened or fear of, you know, the water itself, the fear of the currents, the fear of waves, um, and then logistical things like who look after my children, I don't have time. And what do I wear? And, you know, what happens if I get knocked over? So I met this bunch of about 15 women on that day about four years ago. And a few of us kept on swimming after that day. And then that turned into 30. And we used to meet, kind of just a Facebook group and who's free on Wednesday at, you know, three o'clock and I'm going in at 10 o'clock on Friday mornings. Does anybody fancy it? So very self regulating. And it's just turned into this lovely bunch of really positive, joyful women. And lots of people have stress and mental health issues and, you know, it's a small M, small H, but It's a place where we can meet to get into the water. You don't have to talk deeply or sorrowfully or anything about your problems or your issues. You can if you want to, but it's just a thing of we're here to get in the sea. And we, as I said, this lovely Japanese phrase of living water, which is that the sea takes some of our emotions and our worries from us and we pour ourselves into it. And I think it's a lovely concept of that's what we're there for is to let the sea kind of take what we need out of us and we do it sort of together but not in a real group or a gang or anything it's a very soft gathering of a community of people who are interested in just being in the water for a little bit you just go to have a bit of fun Yeah. Well, this group is because there's loads of groups that are, you know, swimming clubs and stuff and outdoor swimming clubs. And they're all about, you know, how fast did you swim between the two piers and how many kilometers did you do? And have you got a watch that records everything? Now that is Mm. not what salty seabirds are. Their byline is salted wellbeing and it's dippers and bobbers. And if you want to go out You can and you don't. I swim parallel to the shore, groin to groin, within my depth, because that's my comfort zone. But the water works in the very same way. The water doesn't know how many meters out you are or how long you've been in there for. And how long would you stay in the water? Um, In the winter, this time of the year, when it's really cold, single figures, probably 10 minutes or less. Okay. And do you have one of those big dry robe coats? I have a dry robe, which my lovely friends bought for me for a present. And sometimes I wear it, sometimes I don't you know, sometimes people feel like they need the gear to feel safe to do something. And if you Mm -hmm. can see through that or to feel like they fit in and think, well, just, you know, whatever it takes to get you in the water is okay. You Mm -hmm. know, and Mm -hmm. just because you have an expensive dry robe and, you know, you can afford, it doesn't mean that you're not under stress or under pressure do you wear like a wetsuit in the winter or do you just go in in your swimsuit? I don't, know. I can't bear wetsuits. I can't breathe in a Yes, okay. No. So- and it's such a faff as well. You know, but if you want to swim in a wetsuit for anyone listening, go for it. By all means, do whatever it takes to get yourself into the water. It doesn't matter what you wear, to be honest. I swim in a swimsuit and in the winter I have neoprene gloves and boots yes. just to stop your hands and feet falling off. Um brighton is a pebble beach so it cuts the feet off you if you don't all right feet. you know our lovely seabirds group are very much about just come as you are and Mm. you know how do you get a beach body ready take your body to the beach that's it
0: Lovely.
2: I don't know about you, but
0: I'm fed up seeing on Instagram, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so, all these famous people, you know, shows off her eight pack at 41, shows off her six pack at 56 shows. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of going, actually, I'd really like to see them showing off their normal body at 56, that would mean so much more to me. Mm. I'm all for fitness and health and well-being. Mm. And it is important to actually look after you, you know, being overweight Mm. is not good for your brain health. It really Mm. isn't. It puts stress on your cardiovascular system and other parts of your body that your brain depends on. Mm. But also I just feel we've enough pressures on us. And it was women's magazines sharing it. And I go, please
2: stop I know well do you know what's lovely about the sea though or about water once you get into it literally get into it as a habit or literally get into it is you connect to yourself so I think one of the things and I certainly do it when I know I should be kind of doing more with nutrition or exercise I kind of dissociate from my body because I'm very much brain mind thinking talking you know is my modus operandus so I kind of often don't pay much attention to what's going on from the neck down but when you are in cold water you connect with your body again Mm -hmm. because it is especially cold water because you're so freezing so you connect to yourself and you connect to your body and you connect to the water itself and that very surreptitiously trickles into your consciousness of this feels good and look what my body is able to do. And it's a sense of achievement of, look, I went in that cold water and look, I swam and I faced my fears and I did something. And Therefore, maybe I'll be able to handle whatever is going on today or this week, you know, because I could do that. I can do something else. And it's about what our bodies can do and therefore what that symbolizes to ourselves as people, what we can do. So it's not about your eight pack or how you look in a swimsuit or whatever. Like nobody cares. Our salty seabirds, if anybody comments on anyone, they like get shot down fairly rapidly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, you can see that. You can see that with the swimmers. That is yeah. lovely. I think what I may do is because I I did look at it last year and I actually said to my husband, "Because I'd love to be able to do that. And he said, oh, no, you're mad, you're mad. But actually, maybe, but I'd have, I would have to
2: wait till the summertime. Wait till the summer and then just kind of accidentally don't stop. That's what I did. Yeah. Because I just kept going to October and I didn't tell myself I was doing it because then that's kind of pressure. Yeah. So it's just like, oh, no, let's keep going. And if you find a yeah. few people who you get on with and who encourage you, because that's what prevents you from stopping yeah is if somebody says come on now we're going in at eight o'clock tomorrow morning you
0: talk about that in your salty seabirds you know with any form of exercise doing it in a group has additional Mm. benefits you've got your social connection you've got opportunities to smile and laugh with people but you're also more likely to do it again because Mm. somebody knows you won't do it you
2: know I haven't seen you for a while now yeah whatever so no that that definitely happens In one of the chapters of the book I speak, I'm a mindfulness practitioner as well. It's the one thing that really clicks with me in a very practical sense of something that you can do as a way to kind of reframe your navigation through your own life, I think. And John Kabat-Zinn in his great book, Full Catastrophe Living, speaks about the different principles of mindfulness. So in the book, I've taken some of those and just applied them to blue spaces. So I think one of the most powerful ones for me is the principle of non-judging. And I think we live an awful lot of our lives constantly with this mental ticker tape of this is good. This is bad. I like that. I don't like that. Why is it raining? I want it to be sunny. Why is it, why is this person like this? You know, this guy's an idiot. You know, we're constantly very busy with our judging voice, our reactions to every situation, everything, everyone, maybe. And to get quiet, with non-judging means that a trick that I use is to describe something rather than to judge it. So if you have a boss maybe that you don't like, you might just say, Egypt speaking, breathe in, breathe out. Well, Egypt is a little bit of judgment. <laughs> maybe it is. Or person speaking. Speaking, you breathe say in, person breathe out. speaking. Yeah, you could say bit. person. Yeah, yeah. Okay, no, you're right. Yeah, person yeah. speaking, breathe in, breathe out. Or there is rain rather than, yeah. oh, for God's sake, what you know, whatever. So no value judgment just description. really is what it is. Yeah. It's value judgment. It yeah. is what it is. One of those principles you
0: also have is acceptance. And I think yeah. that's really important in terms I'm all for making change happen and all those sorts mm-hmm. of things. But there's a lot of things in life that we really do need to accept where they're yeah. beyond our control and like Absolutely. the weather or whatever. And acceptance of those is very
2: freeing. And, and I is. think they're
0: closely linked with the judgment. With
2: yeah, it's that whole thing of I didn't get what I wanted and I got what I didn't want. So now I'm going to be upset about it for my entire life or keep going back over things. And I think that's where mindfulness is really powerful is to notice our thoughts jumping backwards to the past and, you know, what we could have done, should have done, what we would have liked to happen, you know, and that sort of thing. And then jumping forwards to future worries about what's going to happen next. I don't know. Rather than just being in the present moment. In the moment. And that's why present mindedness is an antidote. You know, it keeps depression and anxiety at bay because that's what both of those are, is looking either too far
0: back or too far forward.
2: Absolutely. You know, if we apply non-judging to blue spaces, we can talk about Not judging the sea for what we wanted it to be doing, if it should be warmer, it should be calmer, I didn't want waves, I wanted calm, or I did want waves and there's none there. Or judging myself in terms of my body, oh, I need to be thinner, I need to have the right... Gear to get in here you know all the kind of judging or I'm judging my ability that person's able to swim further than me or they're not afraid or they're this or they're that you know just be with ourselves in our bodies and in the blue space and allow it and allow ourselves to get what we need from it and mm-hmm. I think that's really important. And as you say, acceptance is, is one. And non-striving, is again, a first cousin of non-judging, which is, you know, you don't have to have the right stuff or be able to swim out to the boys or around the headland and back. Just be peaceful with what you need. The other day I had a really heavy week of brain work and marking and frustration and there was homeschooling and I was all over the place. And I didn't have much time and I just threw on my stuff and I ran down to the end of the road and I got into the sea and I just dunked my head under for five dips, just, and it literally gave me brain freeze. Um, (laughs) And it just cleared my head and I didn't even have time to swim really, but I just knew I needed to do that to clear my head and I didn't have time to I didn't want to do a breathing meditation. I wasn't in the mood. I just wanted the sea to kind of... You needed that sharp kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, jolt me. The jolt to, to switch yeah. up. Yeah. yeah.
0: No, no, that's great. No. It, it, it kind of really is change. I think it's important to say, I mean, really what it is is it's balance. You know, you can't mm-hmm. spend every moment of every day present in the moment because you do no. need to plan and you do need to learn from mistakes. Yeah. And similarly, you know, when you speak about us living a lot of our lives on autopilot, We do need to live some of our lives on autopilot to give our brain, you know, because our brain, it takes less resources to do those habitual things. But it is really about finding balance. We tend to kind of switch over too much into autopilot. So um, given that you have survived quite a number of challenging things throughout your life, I mean, obviously, we're talking about blue spaces and your book. So there's a sense of where your answer will be. But what would you say really has been the key to your surviving and thriving in life.
2: I mean, there's never one key. But I think if I was to give advice to people is just to get outside, get out in nature. Um, for me, it's blue space. For others, it, it may be different forms of nature. But for me, it's get outside, breathe. And, you know, David Attenborough gave a lovely piece of advice. I read an interview by him recently, and he was asked for a tip and I, I'm slightly stealing it here. But he just said, spend half an hour a day outside in nature and it could be your garden for me it's by the sea it could be by a lake a pond a fountain but spend half an hour a day in nature quietly just breathing and see what happens Mm. and see what you Mm. can notice so don't have your phone on and don't judge and watch and you know assess everything just breathe See what you can notice, see what you can hear, what you can actually see. And if you're going to get into water, really feel the feelings of being in your body, in water with your breath.
0: Catherine's book, Blue Spaces, How and Why Water Makes You Feel Better, will be published next week on April 29th, 2021. It is a really informative, interesting and insightful read. Grab yourself a copy wherever you buy books. My name is Sabina Brennan and you have been listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Please follow me on Instagram, YouTube or Twitter. You'll find the links to all my social media on my website, superbrain.ie. Hold up.